Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. The weekend's already here. Premier League football is just hours away and we've got everything you need to get ready for it on today's Football Social Daily. Not only are we going to be looking forward to Friday night football as two under-pressure managers hunt for much-needed points with Southampton's trip to Villa Park, but also... We're going to be looking back on last night's European action as Tottenham Hotspur welcomed their new manager, Antonio Conte, to White Hart Lane. Sure, he didn't envisage his next managerial job starting in the Europa Conference League, but that's where we are, unfortunately. We're also going to look to Leicester City and West Ham in action last night, so we'll be looking at their European draws in their respective competitions. Plus, speaking of hunting and new managers, Newcastle United may have found the prey to end their hunt for a new boss. In fact, by the time you listen to this podcast, he may well already be in place. The latest on who is likely to have Saudi millions to spend in January, coming up later on today's show. To discuss all that, the ever-present Niall McCorn. How you doing, Niall? <laughs> the ubiquitous Niall McCorn. <laughs> yeah, I'm everywhere. Yeah, you're like a Baruka. <laughs> you just can't get rid of you. <laughs> just when you think I'm dying down a bit and you get rid of me, I'll come back with a vengeance. Yeah, no, good to be here. And straight out of the Sports Social Youth Academy, we've got Joel Tudor on the pod as well. How you doing, Joel? <laughs> I'm good, I'm good, thanks. Good, right. If you enjoy this podcast, then please let us know. Give us a follow in your podcast app. Also, leave a review as well. Feels like we've not had a review in quite a while, so I'm putting a mass appeal out there. And when we do get reviews, they're normally from the United States, which is great. Don't get me wrong. I love hearing from the US listeners, and I especially love hearing the stories about how they came to support their team. Like, why does someone in Texas support Blackburn Rovers? I like that stuff. It blows my mind. But my point is, we don't get many UK reviews, so I want some from Blighty, please. Forget your English reservism. If you're in Britain, and get on Apple Pods. Leave us a little review. Tell us what you think of this daily football podcast, please. But you can do that after you've listened to today's podcast. So we'll get into the action straight away. European competition for the English teams. Tottenham's first win under Conte, a 3-2 win at Vitesse. 
Leicester City missing a penalty, drawing with Spartak Moscow and West Ham also drawing 2-2 away at Genk. But that is enough to see them through to the knockout stages of the Europa League. So maybe not too much of a bad result. But let's start with Spurs winning a chaotic game at home to the Dutch side Vitesse. Early signs that Conte is going to have an impact, Niall, or is it at the moment too difficult to make that kind of call? Too early to tell? Well, we said on yesterday's podcast that certainly we're expecting a new manager bounce, regardless of who would have come in, even if... Nuno Espirito Santo had gone and they hadn't brought in Conte for for yesterday's game. I still think we would have seen a reaction from Tottenham Hotspur. But certainly he managed to get his work permit sorted out. We weren't sure whether he would be in the dugout, Antonio Conte, but he was. And he got the result in the end, 3-2. But as you say, a crazy game. I think five goals in the first half, three red cards in the second half. It was absolute carnage. In terms of a reaction, you can definitely say that Spurs played with with a passion. I mean, they there was passion. Up, in, didn't they? Absolutely. It was a passionate game in, in all quarters, really, from both Vitesse and from Tottenham. You can tell by the scoreline. You can tell by the amount of red cards and bookings. Uh, and Antonio Conte is a man who encapsulates passion on the touchline. He is effervescent when he's in that technical area, bouncing up and down, gesturing, waving his arms around, looking like he might need another hair transplant before too long if that <laughs> continues. But to be honest... I definitely think we saw a reaction from Tottenham. Despite the fact that they conceded two and they had a sending off, they got three points. And that's what you just have to do. You have to win. I mean, your first game in the Europa Conference League, as you say, wouldn't have been ideal circumstances. And actually, Antonio Conte was asked before the game, how much of an impact have you had this week in terms of training? And he was like, well, I've only just got here. So, you know, it's not going to be this game where you start to see the real fruits of the labour. Of course, that will be further down the line. But he's got off to a winning start and you can't ask for much more than that. And, you know, we I talk about passion in a passionate performance. You can't deny that to score three goals inside half an hour of any game shows that you've got a reaction. Considering Tottenham didn't have a shot on target at all in the game against Manchester United, they went over two hours without having a shot on target in the Premier League. And I know this is the Conference League against much weaker opposition, but they've scored three goals in half an hour, which is much better than what they could manage in any of their previous games. So definitely, I think we did see a reaction. And although I don't think that will be a blueprint for what Antonio Conte will do going forward, it's a great start. Picking up a win, a game in which they needed to win after they lost to Vitesse two weeks ago in the return fixture. And uh, and it's a good start for Conte. And I suppose you couldn't really ask for much more. It was definitely an entertaining game, to say the least. He clearly wanted a win in this game. Even though it's the Europa Conference, we saw 10 of the starters from the Manchester United game at the weekend, that 3-0 loss on the pitch for this game from the very start, including Harry Kane. And I thought that was one of the differences I spotted with Tottenham. The fact that Harry Kane seemed to push slightly further up the pitch. In recent weeks, we've seen him dropping deep, looking for the ball, kind of like Wayne Rooney used to do when he was getting frustrated in games. But here we saw... Harry Kane holding a bit more of a high line right up against the Vitesse defence. Did we learn anything else from Conte from this first match in charge, Joel? Did we know how he's going to set up his team for the Premier League? Uh, Well, I think as we've seen with Conte in the past, he's not afraid to change it up if he feels like the system doesn't fit his players or if the players don't fit his system. Because I think if you remember around five years ago when he first joined Chelsea... He was pretty adamant on going for that 4-2-3-1 and then suddenly they, they found themselves 3-0 behind against Arsenal. And at half-time, he switched the whole system around and went for a 3-4-3 um, because clearly the players just didn't fit with what he had envisioned initially. 
Um, but I think that as as we've seen with this game, it's more a game to see. Okay, well, let's see who what he, what you've got. It's a clean slate for everyone. Everyone starts from zero again. And like you said, Jim, um, I think with Harry Kane going a bit further forward, it's a pretty similar role to how a striker under Conte always ends up operating. When you've looked at like Diego Costa at Chelsea or Lukaku at Inter Milan, they're always ones who he wants them far, far forward in the box to be scoring the goals where his wingbacks, who are massive parts of his teams, are going to be putting the crosses in. Um, but I think that from from what I'd seen... And when you look at previous Conte teams, the midfield is something that I think he's going to have to change quite quickly. Because if you've looked at his previous partnerships, he's had Matic and Conte. Then at Juventus, it was Pogba, uh, Vidal, Perlo. Then you had um, Inter Milan, Brozovic and Barela. If The common characteristic with all those sides is that he's always had an engine. Is that they're all good? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as well as that. All, they, they can all he's kick a ball. just Eric Dyer and Harry Winks aren't the same. They, they can <laughs> all, they can Not all quite pass. the same as Pogba, Pirlo and Vidal, is it? But there we go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Skip and Hoiberg is a, <laughs> is a bit of a come down, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I think he's going to realise that quite quickly. Probably already has realised that quite quickly. Um, and I think especially in the defence. I think for me, after the, the goals that they conceded so quickly, it's massively clear that they still need a replacement for Vertonghen and Alderweireld. Um, when you look to Eric Dyer, he looks completely out of place still. I'm surprised he still managed to maintain his spot at Tottenham. Uh, Christian Romero was super reckless when he ended up getting a second yellow card just after half-time. So I think, yeah, it's, it was pretty writing on the wall in terms of this result, but I think going forward this season's going to be a case of him understanding who is on my side in terms of quality and who's the ones that I'm going to have to leave behind and I think there's quite a few who's going to have to leave behind you gave us a little potted summary of the game earlier Nile, and as you say they had the game totally in their control Spurs but as always with Tottenham never too far away from being Spursy again they let the opposition back in kind of looked very nervy and very poor defensively in the second half particularly after the first goal went in this isn't going to be an easy fix for Conte, is it? This isn't overnight success. He's not going to be able to turn this ship around straight away. No, absolutely not. But what we've seen, and I joked about you know, the midfield of Spurs just a few minutes ago, but what we've seen from Conte, particularly when he went into Chelsea, which is how most of the Premier League remembers him, of course. Obviously, uh, we should give credit to what he did in Serie A both times with Juventus and with Inter Milan, but most of the eyes on Conte, what we remember is from his time at Chelsea. But he went into Chelsea... And he turned players who were perceived to be either surplus to requirements or not good enough at Chelsea into players that were effectively the catalyst for him winning the league. You know, he turned Victor Moses into a brilliant right wing back and Marcos Alonso on the other side. And they were the the ever presence for Chelsea that season. And then the back three of Aspilicueta, Cahill and David Luiz, who of course... um, you know, has been questioned for his abilities at times, the Brazilian defender for, for maybe making too many mistakes, but he, he turned them into players who were absolutely crucial components to the Chelsea team. So we can joke about how the quality of the midfielders that Tottenham have got maybe isn't the same as some of his previous clubs. And that includes Chelsea with, with Kante and Matic a few seasons ago. But certainly, if he can turn players like Moses and Alonso into key components, there's no reason why he can't do that with some of the players that Spurs have got now. Spurs haven't got a bad squad by any stretch. And it's up to a manager to try and squeeze 
as much juice out of them as possible and find you know the right formations and the right systems to make things work and it's easy for us to sit here on the podcast and say this is what Conte needs to do that is what Conte needs to do but he'll have an idea in mind and he'll be learning about his players from the word go he's only been in the job two days and he's already seen them play one game they've probably had few training sessions I definitely think that there's plenty of learning to do for Antonio Conte and like you say quick fix I think that is the key two words that you've said there. That is exactly what everyone's looking for in the Premier League. And I think we've got this thing at the moment in football where a majority of the pundits that we see on TV, on radio, and just in the media in general, have been great players from a time in which stability in management was very much considered the key thing. We were, you know, we hear from pundits who played in a time where Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager for 20 years, where Arsene Wenger was the manager for 20 years. We don't live in that environment anymore. Football doesn't have that stigma attached to it anymore. If you're in a job for more than three years, you're bucking the trend. That Managers don't stay in jobs for eight years like Sean Dyche and like Eddie Howe at Bournemouth. That just doesn't happen anymore. That is an anomaly. Sean Dyche to be at one club for eight years, especially in the Premier League. I mean, just look at Watford, look at Chelsea, teams that change their manager all the time. So I think it's interesting when you see the narratives coming from those people that comment on the game saying, oh, they've made a change, quick fix. It is quick fix. Football is all about the here and now. Certainly it feels like that in the modern climate. So Antonio Conte, I'm sure, as he's been given an 18-month contract, will be successful at Tottenham. Whether that means winning them a trophy, I'm not so sure. But in terms of being more successful than what Nuno Espirito Santo was, I couldn't agree more. I think that is going to be the case. Normally in a game that's seen three red cards, we probably talk about those red cards, but to be honest with you, two double yellows for professional fouls, completely deserved. Red card for a keeper who handled outside the box, completely deserved. So we're not going to talk about it. Instead, we're going to talk about West Ham, who had considered their first goals in Europe this season, which seems like a bonkers thing to say. They drew 2-2 with Genk. That's enough to see them through to the knockout stages of the Europa League. But they went strong for this one compared to what they've done in previous rounds, Joel. Four starters in this lineup that started on their game in Sunday, including Mikel Antonio, who tends to be rested for the Europa games. And I have to say, I watched this with interest, being a West Ham fan. They looked a bit leggy at times, particularly in the first half. Looked like they... Took a little while to wake up. Ariola was called on to make a number of decent saves as well. Is there warning signs there for West Ham about the perils of having such a small squad but trying to manage multiple competitions at the same time? Yeah, I think it's been very similar for a lot of the sides in the Europa League from the Premier League at the moment, especially West Ham and Leicester, where you always find initially in the game, they seem to go one or two goals behind straight away. I don't know if it's a case of, like you say, a lack of depth in the squad or a mentality thing going into it. But I think with this one, David Moyes knew that this was a vital game in terms of getting through to the next round because they are undefeated in the, in Europe, but they just haven't seen the right side of the victory, uh, the results at the moment. Um, and I think it was warranted, to be honest, because if you look at it from a aerial perspective, this is probably West Ham's most likely route into the Champions League, considering, you know, obviously Tottenham have got Conte now. I don't know how United will do in terms... There's a lot of competition for that top four, put it that way. And this is such an amazing route for West Ham because I don't think the competition is as strong as it was in the last couple of years in terms of the calibre of sides. Um, And I just think that, yeah, for example, one namely mentioned should be Ben Rama, who, again, keeps coming up with the big, big goals, especially that second goal, 
where he just kind of turned his man and then put it through the keeper's legs for the second time in the night. Nearly a hat trick of nutmeg. <laughs> um, and I've been I've been massively impressed with him. I think he had a quite slow start when he first came from Brentford, but he's really started to make that position in the team his own now, and he's really showing his quality like constantly. But then on the flip side, when you look at Suchek, um last season that header would have gone top corner against the opposition. This time it's gone <laughs> for his own club for his own club. Um but yeah, I think it took nearly fifty eight minutes for West Ham to click into gear and I think it's purely a case of the fact that as we see season on season, clubs begin to struggle when they don't have massive squad depth in the Europa League, especially when they've got a game on Saturday, Sunday to follow. Um, and it's it's just the case of managing managing the players and managing the squad and just I respect David Moyes for actually trying to field a bit of a stronger squad compared to, you know, maybe other teams in the past who've really kind of neglected the competition. Because he realizes it's a real chance for silverware and West Ham have not won silverware in a long, long time. So credit to him for that. They've been really impressive this season. Joel mentioned the own goal there from Suchek that gave Genk the point in the dying minutes, but it was a diving header from kind of a, a quite a difficult angle to score from, actually. So I guess, I mean, I don't know whether you can give someone credit for an own goal, but it wouldn't have been expected, I don't think. It could have gone anywhere, and the top corner was the least likely place. Was he within his rights to go for that? Was it the right decision from Suchek Nile to go for that header when there wasn't a huge amount of danger going on? Well, I think he needs a bit of help from his teammates in that situation, don't you think, Jim? You know, he just needs a shout, doesn't he? Don't do it. Do do mm. it. Um, and listen, Sochek well, is... Even, even, if, even if you wouldn't call someone not to hit, head it from there because yeah, I mean, the angle's so tight. Well, he's a committed player, isn't he, Sochek? Mm. And I think it's just probably in his DNA just to go for that anyway. Um, he probably didn't know exactly what was around him at the time. Uh, maybe caught up in the moment of the game with it being at the end. He's probably thinking, the last thing I want to do here is let this go past me and someone taps it in for an equaliser. In the end, he nuts it into his own goal for an equaliser. So, you know, it's, it's unfortunate for him. But listen, he's been so good for West Ham, hasn't he? Particularly last season with the goals he contributed. I think an own goal in the 90th minute against a team away from home in Europe isn't going to be the defining moment of his West Ham career. There's there's no doubt about that. And actually with Dinamo Zagreb winning their game in the other group uh, group match, there that means West Ham are qualified with that point due to the knockout stages at the very minimum. So that's a, a great result for West Ham, really. Obviously, they could have ended up winning the game 2-1. Unfortunate own goal. It's just one of those things. There's not really a lot to say about it, like you say. I mean, I just think Sochek, it's his nature, isn't it, to go for that sort of ball. So it just didn't work out in the end. It was unlucky. It was unfortunate. Feel for the West Ham fans who had travelled to Belgium who would have maybe seen their side win away from home in Europe. Could there be a better feeling than that? A night on the beers in Belgium and in the end they had to settle for a draw. But it says a lot about West Ham United and how far they've come in recent years that we're talking about them being disappointed not to win away from home in European competition. Whereas before we were talking about them, you know, lucky to be uh, win a game at the bottom of the table in the Premier League. So definitely think that we need to take these things into consideration if you zoom out and look at the bigger picture. Um, what I thought was most interesting about that game in terms of personnel, like what Joel was discussing before, was a lot of uh, question marks over David Moyes on what was his 1,000th game as a manager for selecting Mikhail Antonio in the starting eleven. Considering you've got a big game against Liverpool at the weekend, everyone was saying, oh, why is Antonio in the eleven when we've got a, a huge game on Sunday in the Premier League? David Moyes wants to win. He wants to win the group. 
and therefore you don't play a Champions League team dropping down into the Europa League in the next stage of the competition. The last 32 is next. You could face a Champions League team if you go through in second place. David Moyes probably doesn't want to take that risk. He wants to see his side through to the last 16, to the quarterfinals, maybe even beyond that. Who knows? And um, he considered that an important game. And so Mikhail Antonio was given the start. And it's just funny, isn't it, that after a thousand games as a manager, you've still got people on Twitter who play for the dog and duck in barking. (laughs) giving you a lesson on what your team selection should be. Oh, Football the, should never change. I love it. love the dog and duck embarking. Great pub. <laughs> um, one quick word on Suchek. I think some of the criticism he's had this season has been unfair. There's been a lot of noise on social media that he hasn't lived up to the standards he did last season, but the standards he set last season were stupidly high, contributed a load of goals, which he did in his career at uh, Spartak, incidentally, as well. But he just hasn't got the goals this season. He's still in a vital part of that West Ham team, adding stability alongside Rice in that midfield. So his parts should not be underplayed in West Ham's successful season. So far, successful anyway. Speaking of Spartak, it was Leicester City versus Spartak Moscow in the final Europa League game. Jamie Vardy missing a penalty in that. It cost Leicester the win, ultimately. In terms of Leicester City, should alarm bells be ringing, Joel, about their form this season? because they haven't reached their previous high standards. But just like Thomas Suchek, is it a case of raised expectations and maybe they've been over-succeeding in the last couple of years? Yeah, maybe they are a bit of a victim of their own success. But I mean, to be honest, they've warranted that because in the last two years, they've been inches away from getting top four qualification, albeit to a bit of a capitulation every single time at the end of the season. But they're forming Europe strange. And I think is a bit of a common trend amongst Premier League sides in the Europa League. It's almost as if the other team always wants it more because it's like their, as we were discussing before the show, it's like their huge moment in Europe. Whereas for Leicester, obviously, I'm sure they'll be more gutted about not being in the Champions League. But let's face the facts, this is probably their best entry into the Champions League, uh, considering how much more competitive it is to get into that top four in the Premier League. But now they've left themselves in a really, really difficult position. They've got one win in the last four in the group. They've got Napoli, who are undefeated at the top of Serie A, who are looking probably the best team in Italy at the moment and are far and wide going to win that group. But even with Warsaw and Moscow, Leicester have got enough to beat them both pretty easily, you would think. And they fielded quite a strong side against their Warsaw yesterday. I mean, they had the majority of the first team as playing. They were comfortable in possession, but there was just no cutting edge whatsoever. Um, and I think that Vardy miss, it was a pretty poor penalty. Equally as good of a save, but a pretty poor penalty. And I think that could be the miss that cost them from going through. Because as Niall was saying as well, why would you go and travel to all these different crazy locations in the Europa League? not really try to win the group all to then end up coming up against like Sevilla who absolutely live for this competition I think they end up going out of the Champions League on purpose just to get into this competition um, <laughs> and they're going to probably end up winning it again but all that effort especially to qualify last year I mean Leicester need to forget about three four years ago uh, six years ago sorry they were relegation standard side they need to keep that consistency going and realise how lucky they are to actually be in the competition. So I think they are a bit of a victim of their own success. Um, but now they probably have to win against Napoli, which is a massive, massive ass because they haven't been defeated yet this season. And they have to uh, go away to uh, Poland as well. So it's not looking good for Leicester. And 
I think it'll be a huge opportunity missed if they didn't go for this because then they have to look at, well, what's next? Because their league form isn't incredible at the moment um, and the competition is just getting more and more, way more than the last year's. Third in the group after four games. It's a difficult job to qualify from here from Leicester City. But they had the ball last night, Nile. 76.9% of the possession, but as seems to be the case quite often with Leicester City at the moment, they just can't find a way through. They can't find the goal when they have that possession. What is the problem? Because they appear, on the face of it, to have the personnel in front of goal. Not just in terms of their front players, but in terms of they've got goals in midfield as well. So why are they struggling? Is it confidence, form? Is it the wrong personnel? Again, is it they overachieved last season, so we expect too much of them? I think probably the latter. I don't think it's the wrong personnel. I don't think you can say that after two brilliant years that Leicester City have all of a sudden signed the wrong players. I, I don't think that's right. You know, let's not forget Pats and Dacca scored four in a 4-3 win against Spartak Moscow two weeks ago. And he scored all four and he was one of the players they signed in the summer. So I don't think that's fair to suggest that the recruitment has been wrong. I just think if Jamie Vardy scores that penalty, we, we don't talk about these sorts of things. These aren't talking points on today's podcast. But because he did miss... We are now talking about what's going wrong with Leicester City. Oh, sorry. And I think that's just... <laughs> the, turn that porn off, Jim, if you could. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but certainly, uh, I think if you look at the stats, you mentioned the possession, 77 to 23, 90% pass accuracy, nine corners, 13 shots, but only three of those are on target. Compare that with Spartak Moscow, 62% pass accuracy, 23% possession, Four shots, only one on target, and that was the goal. So it might have just been one of those games for Leicester City where Spartak came with it with a game plan, they were on the back foot, and they were resilient. And like you say, it might be a tough task for Leicester to qualify from the group, but if they win their next two home games, uh, they win, sorry, they win the next two games, a home game against Legia Warsaw, and then they're away in Naples in the first week of December, then they've still got a chance because despite them being third in the group, it's a very tight group, this. You know, Napoli are top with seven points, Legia second with six, Leicester third with five, and Spartak with four. So it's seven, six, five, four in terms of the amount of points. And it's still set up for any of these teams to either qualify or not qualify. So it's very, very close. Um, There's a, a lack of consistency in this group, I find. So I definitely think that Leicester have still got the option to qualify. Let's not let's not say that it's too much of an uphill task. They have to beat Legia Warsaw at home. They have to. Because going away to Napoli, as Joel says, is going to be an extremely difficult test. In terms of what their issue is at the moment, I think they have missed Fafana. They missed Johnny Evans when he was injured. Um, Ndidi's been out for a spell this season. And we saw a couple of years ago when Ndidi spent a a lengthy time on the sidelines, they weren't as good a team. Um, I just think that maybe they are just suffering a little bit from the last two seasons in which, as Joel says... They missed out on Champions League qualification on the final day of the season, both times, finishing fifth. And we know how good the Premier League is. We know the quality of the Premier League. We know how tough it is to keep a consistent level for three, four, five seasons in a row, which makes what Manchester City do even more exceptional. Because Liverpool, they got 97 points, didn't win the title. Then they won the title the following season. And then last season, they ended up finishing fourth. But that was a a late run thing. They only just snatched fourth place and everyone was saying, well, what about Van Dyke being injured in the injuries and stuff like that? To keep that level of intensity and that level of performance for three seasons is tough. And we're into the third season now of Leicester being one of the teams where everyone is looking at saying they should be comfortably in the top six. And 
it's just not quite happening for them. So I think maybe we should take that into consideration. I'm sure they'll be fine because in the strange way that the Premier League has worked this season, despite this European result, they're still only three points off Manchester United and Arsenal in fifth and sixth. You know, and if Manchester United don't beat City, for example, and Arsenal slip up to Watford and Leicester City win their game this weekend, they could end up fifth or sixth in the table after what's considered a pretty poor start to the season. So I still think it's pretty early to to talk down Leicester as someone who as a team who could actually do something this season. But yeah, they need to be doing better in Europe, that's for sure. Focus for Leicester City, West Ham and Tottenham back on the Premier League this weekend. And that's exactly where we're going next because there's Friday night football. It's Southampton versus Aston Villa. The thoughts of Joel and Niall next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. Looking ahead to tonight's game, it's Southampton versus Aston Villa. If you want a preview of all the Premier League action ahead of this weekend, later on tonight you'll be able to get our show, The Dugout, where former footballing professionals discuss the weekend's Premier League action before it happens. Who's on this weekend's show now? We have got Trevor Stephen, formerly of England, of Rangers, of Marseille, and in the Premier League played for Burnley and for Everton. A bit of a legend at Goodison Park as well, so be interesting to hear his thoughts on how poor Everton have been in the last three games. And we've also got Matt Jarvis, who used to play for West Ham, so he would have enjoyed Javo. seeing... Yeah, Jarvo <laughs> back on the show, played for Wolves. And Norwich as well. So three teams that he used to play for, all in different areas of the table. West Ham flying high, Wolves in mid-table and Norwich really struggling. You'll be able to get that later on today. Click subscribe or follow wherever you're listening to this podcast. It'll pop up on your feed later. But let's talk about Southampton versus Aston Villa. Pressure mounting on Dean Smith at Aston Villa. Is this must-win level yet, Joel? Yeah, it's a strange one with Villa. I think that the Grealish departure, I didn't realise just how much influence he actually had on that side. It kind of reminds me of the Gareth Bale departure, not in terms of how good he was, because obviously Bale was about 10 times the player Grealish was in that season. But I mean, in terms of replacing a key star player, a talisman in your side with like three, four, five different players, it it usually just does not work at all. To be fair with Villa, though, you know, they've had Buendouille, who's kind of struggled to find his feet at Villa. Obviously, you've got Leon Bailey, who struggled with injuries. Danny Ings, again, struggled with injuries. So I do have sympathy for Dean Smith. He's not had his fully fit side. You've also got Tyrone Mings, who's been in and out of the side, which is pretty uncharacteristic. Um, but it's for me, it was strange because I was at the game when Villa beat uh, Manchester United at Old Trafford and they were really really disciplined such a disciplined side really good system they had a plan in place I don't know if it's just because we were absolutely awful on the day that made them look a little bit better than they actually were but since then they've had four successive defeats and that's pretty worrying how they can't get up a level after such a huge win probably one of their biggest wins in recent years Um but I think the Grealish influence was just way bigger than we realised. However, I do think, and I definitely don't think it's time to kind of be thinking, oh, Dean Smith, you know, he's time to go. He's, 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 he's had his, like, ceiling in terms of coaching. I think he's been very unfortunate this season, just in terms of the injuries and the personnel dropping off levels that we saw last season. Um but I think like we've seen in recent seasons, you know, when you had like Newcastle's Pardew side and Sheffield's side where they were high flying and 
the common denominator in all of these sides dropping off is that they end up losing a key player the following season and it just never ever seems to click after that and I think and I hope it's not the case for Villa but they seem to have a bit of a mountain to climb in terms of just replacing that huge influence their captain um, who was probably one of the players of the season last year Do you agree with that Niall in terms of the issues that Villa face are largely down to the departure of Jack Grealish because at the time I think it was obvious or we certainly thought on the podcast it was obvious Grealish was going to go when they were bringing in these players like Danny Ings who isn't available for the game tonight by the way he won't be able to face Southampton his former club but we sort of thought they looked like they were preparing well for his departure so do you put the failings this season down to him no longer being available? No, I don't. I think it plays a part, but I don't think you can say that. I mean, they lost the first game of the season to Watford, which was a surprise. They lost 3-2. That was the very first game of the season back in August. But they won three of their first six league games. And now what are we, 10 games in and they've lost the last four. So I don't think it's Jack Grealish that's the issue. I think it's defensively. Like I said, winning three of their first six games... But in the last four games, they've conceded 12 goals, including four to West Ham last weekend, Jim, as you'll remember. So I definitely... They were very poor. Yeah, they were very poor. They almost capitulated, didn't they? Which is, is a concern. And with some of the fixtures they've got coming up next month, I know it's November now, but we've got two-week international break. In December, between now and Christmas, they've got Manchester City, Liverpool, Leicester and Chelsea still to play. So it's not really a good time to be in a bad run of form. To lose four in a row is of real concern. I don't think you can put that down to the absence of Jack Grealish because they won half of their first six games, including good wins against Everton and against Manchester United at Old Trafford, as Joel's already said. And, you know, to then go on a four-game losing streak after that win at Old Trafford, I don't think is down to the lack of prowess up front. I think Watkins has done okay this season. I think Ings has done all right this season. I think it's at the back that their problems lie. And they won't have Esri Konza for this game tonight as well because he's been sent off in that game against West Ham. And I don't think Tyrone Mings is perhaps quite as good as people think. So I definitely think that there are issues at the back for Aston Villa to concede 12 in four games, an average of three a game in those defeats. That's really poor. And I think that's the issue that Aston Villa need to address. I don't think we need to get caught up in the whole, do they miss Jack Grealish? Of course they miss him because he's a top quality player. But he doesn't play for them anymore. They need to focus on what they do have. And I think the players they brought in, as you mentioned before, left them quite well well prepared. But it's at the back that my issues would lie with Villa if I was a, an Aston Villa supporter. To concede that many goals in that short space of time and to lose that many games in a row is of real concern. And no doubt the pressure is now intensifying on Dean Smith because of that. Well, I started this section by asking whether the pressure was mounting on Dean Smith and whether it was must-win levels yet. The pressure's mounting on Ralph Hasenhutl, Joel. Is it must-win <laughs> levels yet? I mean, does Hasenhutl ever feel pressure? Because he's is he like the only manager who survived two nine-nil losses? <laughs> yeah, probably. Because I don't know if there's, I don't think there's any other manager who survived that. After I tell you what, you games. called me a Veruca at the start of the show, Jim. Ralph Hasenhutl <laughs> is he's the Veruca of the Premier League. <laughs> he sticks around. He's like a parking attendant around a, a car that's been overdue. I'm telling you, he, <laughs> he will never, ever leave that club regardless of the results. But yeah, potentially the the pressure's mounting. He's in 14th place at the moment. They've lost the last two. Uh, sorry, uh, no, they haven't lost the last two. Uh, they've undefeated in the last three. Um, 
But it seems like goals are kind of drying up for them a little bit, especially, obviously, with the departure of Danny Ings. I think that was always going to happen. I think Che Adams has come into the side and really adapted well. Um, but I don't think there's much pressure on Harsin Hootel just because it seems as though the owners back him pretty to a high level, especially, like I mentioned, after suffering such defeats. I don't think there'd be many Premier League sides who would stick by a manager after that. Um, and the first one against Leicester that season, um, that was pretty close to him only just joining, if I remember rightly. Um, so I'm pretty sure that, well, I'm quite surprised that they didn't uh, switch with that appointment. But they're just above Villa at the moment. It's quite a big game for both of them. It could see them both, if either win, go into 10th place, which, you know, changes kind of the whole complexion of the situation. It just seems to me like, you know, at this this stage of the season, when all the teams are so close together, one win takes you five, six places, one loss takes you five, six places south. It's not really a time to kind of be panicking unless you're in the position of, say, Newcastle or Norwich, where you just can't hit a barn door and you couldn't buy a win. Well, potentially, if you're Newcastle, you could buy a win, but right now you can't. So it's it's a case of just biding the time. If you're if you're an owner pre Christmas and looking at the table, if you're in the relegation positions, if you're in around the 10, 12, 15 mark point, it doesn't really pay massive. Uh, it doesn't paint the story massively well because one win takes you nearly halfway up the table. So I think that they're in a good position right now and they're seeming to find form at the right time as well when it comes into kind of this really congested fixture list after the international break. Joel also mentioned that Newcastle can't buy a win at the moment. What they can buy is a new manager and that appointment appears to be getting closer. News on who that is likely to be next on Football Social Daily. Football's Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. Football's Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Welcome back to the final bit of today's podcast. We are talking Newcastle and we are talking new managers. A deal is reportedly close for Eddie Howe to be the new boss at St. James's Park. So close, in fact, that by the time you listen to this podcast, it may well have already happened. They're hoping to have it in place for the game on Saturday. A deal apparently already agreed in principle. Is this the right man for the job, Joel? Is Eddie Howe the type of manager that's going to be able to get Newcastle United out of the trouble they currently find themselves in. I mean, for a man who paid £40 million for Dom Solanke and Jordan Ibe, <laughs> they're in a dangerous position. Aren't they? He's a dangerous man to give money to, we know that he's a, much. He's got, yeah, he's a dangerous man with money in his hands, but um, honestly, I think that Newcastle are in a position where their ambitions and where they want to be do not sit with how they look right now and it's pretty obvious I mean the four points in the league after 10 games in the 19th of course the money is going to have to be a major factor in attracting the likes of um, Fonseca or Emery who's just turned them down it, it just kind of shows no matter how much money you flash at managers you need to at least be established and they don't want to be kind of fighting for relegation straight away and I think with Eddie Howe and I think the owners think this too, they need someone who can, for the next nine months, just keep them in the Premier League. And I think Eddie Howe's probably a good choice for that, where, you know, he knows the league, 
did pretty well with Bournemouth in the seasons he was uh, in the Premier League for. Took them from League Two all the way to the Premier League. So you know he he's, he's been there and done that. But I don't see him being their long term candidate, just because of the lofty ambitions Newcastle have. And I think that if they were to, for example, hire uh, Fonseca, who doesn't have any Premier League experience whatsoever, was pretty underwhelming when he was at Roma. If he was to go down with Newcastle, how much of a worse situation would that leave them in? I think they're thinking ahead in terms of, right, our squad at the moment is really poor. If we potentially go down and we go down with Eddie Howe, we have confidence that he can bring us back up. I'm not sure if they looked at it with Fonseca that he would either stay around to actually want to take them back up or that he's capable of actually doing that. So I think Eddie Howe is a pretty sensible choice just in terms of trying to stabilise the ship because I think if they end up staying in the league uh, for next season, then they can really start to flex the financial muscle and start to see exactly what their plan is. But I think they're looking at both sides of the coin at the moment and thinking for a contingency plan, which is there is potential we could go down and there's not a guarantee that we're going to attract the best players because we're not the right side Mm. right now to attract these players. He's certainly a manager that can handle a relegation battle. He had, what, five, six of them with Bournemouth, with the Cherries constantly on the cusp of relegation. But do you think Newcastle fans will be disappointed with this one, Niall? I know Marley, before, when this news broke and we talked about potential managers, he said the job was now too big for Eddie Howe, that the club had moved beyond him as a manager. But here they are going back to him as their second choice, let's not forget, because... Unai Emery turned them down. So do you think there'll be some disillusionment from Newcastle fans who are expecting a big name to come into the job? I don't know, to be honest. I think they'll be happy just because he's not Steve Bruce. And I think (laughs) that that's one thing that Eddie Howe will deliver, a better playing style than Steve Bruce. And, you know, when Marley came on the podcast on a number of occasions and bashed Bruce for the way he played in his tactics, you won't get that with Eddie Howe. Like I joked about earlier on, David Moyes managed a 1,000 games. It was his 1,000th game as a manager on Thursday and he's still got West Ham United Twitter uh, telling him that he shouldn't have played Antonio last night. You're going to get that. That's football. You're going to get people questioning your team selection. But Eddie Howe has certainly got a bit more of a technical background than Steve Bruce when it comes to coaching. There's a lot more evidence of uh, his techniques and styles. Clear to see that Eddie Howe is a good coach. I don't think there's any denial of that. Also working with players he's worked with before, like Ryan Fraser and Callum Wilson, who are both former Bournemouth players, of course. Matt Ritchie is a former Bournemouth player. So I think there's definitely uh, an element of that maybe involved in Eddie Howe taking the job. In terms of Marley saying the job is too big for Eddie Howe, I think he has a somewhat of a point in, in the sense that, you know, Eddie Howe, Unai Emery is a more prestigious manager than Eddie Howe. Uh, Fonseca has managed a big club, much bigger than Bournemouth in Roma quite recently. He's also managed big teams in Portugal as well. So you're looking at some of the names that have been linked. Uh, Lucien Favre, a former Dortmund boss. Now, Bournemouth are a team who, when I was growing up, were in League Two. And that's where Eddie Howe deserves respect and credit. He took them from the fourth tier to the Premier League and kept them there for five years. So I think that maybe in terms of the glamour appointment, certainly there might be a few underwhelmed people there I just think that Newcastle have made a mess of this the press were briefed that Unai Emery had taken the job and he was going to be the new manager that was never the case Unai Emery had never agreed to take the job according to the reports coming out of Spain and so I think that 
as we discussed on yesterday's podcast, the takeover almost took the powers that be by surprise. They were expecting there to be an arbitration case, a court hearing in January. And all of a sudden, here we are mid-October and they're now the owners of Newcastle, two and a half months sooner than they thought they would be. And I think that that might have caught them by surprise. I think they had to sack Steve Bruce when they came in because they had to be seen to do something. And I think that it would have been an anticlimax and the pressure would have been building even greater now with Newcastle still having lost their last two games since Bruce has gone. I think that would have been a huge issue. So I definitely think that there are there are question marks around the appointment. There always will be when it's a high profile job, which Newcastle now is with the ownership in there. But I don't think Eddie Howe is a poor choice, put it that way. He'll get them playing better football. I mean, he did get relegated in his last relegation battle. I don't think we should leave that out. But he was also the man who constructed a very strong, solid championship side, ended up coming up to the Premier League and kept the club stable for a number of years. In terms of the packet it will have to spend in January, um, there might be concerns over recruitment in that sense. As you say, Dom Solanke and RU were two flop buys. There's been a few. Uh, I mean, Jordan Ive was a terrible signing for Bournemouth as well. So there's been a few question marks over his recruitment. Newcastle need to get their recruitment right in January. They're not going to have more than one shot at it because they're 19th in the table. They're still yet to win a game. They've still got the same players and they will do for the next two months. Whether Eddie Howe gets a better tune out of them in that period of time between now and January than Steve Bruce, I'm pretty sure he will do. But definitely need to go into the market in January. Otherwise, Newcastle could be looking down the barrel. And although it will set them back a year if they go down to the championship, that's not where this ownership want to be. They didn't buy Newcastle United to be a championship club. They bought them to be a Premier League club. And that status is at risk. So Eddie Howe will come in and his first job is to get them playing better football, but more importantly, to get them winning. Because if they don't win soon, they could be in real trouble early doors. They're already six points from safety. In terms of inside the dressing room, Joel, we've seen this scenario at Spurs where a first choice manager doesn't get the job. And it's very public that that first choice manager hasn't got the job. And it's not the same scenario there where they haven't gone down to sixth or seventh in the list with Nuno Espirito Santo. But certainly, as Niall says, it was very public that the club wanted Unai Emery and he turned them down because he disagreed with the strategy. How does that affect the dressing room when you've got a team of players who know the manager isn't 100% the individual that the board want in that job? I guess it's going to help that the likes of, again, as Nas says, Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser, Matt Ritchie, they've all played under Eddie Howe. They all have relationships. That's going to be a positive. But could the, I want to say, lack of faith from the Newcastle board be a negative from Howe's reign at the very start. I think they're two very, very different situations, though, if you, like you said, compare Spurs to Newcastle. I mean, if you've got players like Harry Kane, Hyunmin Son, and they're waiting for someone like Conte in the summer to come, and then they end up getting Nuno, I mean, those two players are pretty much bigger than the manager, and of course, they're going to expect way higher calibre managers because Spurs are a club that are looking to, you know, contend with the best then they have the capability to do that whereas on the flip side Newcastle a lot of their players before this takeover were probably thinking okay we're in for a grueling season this year we're going to probably be fighting relegation and I don't think they really have the right to be disappointed because this is the situation at the club right now the the, the situation's kind of been sprung upon them and their mentality shifted from 
we're with Steve Bruce, we're going to be fighting relegation to now looking at all these multi-million pound signings, all these lofty plans about wanting to get into the Champions League, etc, etc. So I don't think it's going to be, I don't think it'll have the same effect on Newcastle as it did on Tottenham, purely just because the calibre of player is different. I think maybe Bar like sets and Maximum, who probably will have the right to kind of be understanding what's going on at the club because he's I'd say way way better than that club sorry Marley if you're listening um, but yeah I think with Newcastle I think they'll be happy and like you guys have said there's a lot of players who have already played under Eddie Howe, they understand how he is, um, they played very very well under him, I mean Callum Wilson was re- an amazing striker under Eddie Howe so I think it'll probably be more beneficial than anything and exactly like Niall said I think the first things first is just to get them playing football again the right way because under Bruce I mean all the fans were dreading going to watching their games in the recent weeks and months. So as I think it's the right appointment at the right time. I don't think the, the owners expected it to be this difficult. I think they thought they could click the fingers and any manager would come if they wave six, seven million a year at them. But the facts are this, Newcastle aren't at that stature at the moment and it'll be a risk for a, a lot of managers to go there knowing that's the squad that they have. You know they'd have to turn tables and make miracles to do something crazy and you know for all we know in January some of the best players may not want to go there it's not a given um, so I think it's the perfect hiring for this stage that Newcastle are at in their long term plan I don't think he's going to be there for a long time but he needs to stabilise the ship he's not there for a long time he's there for a good time um, <laughs> as I said Newcastle want to have this shout out Jerizzi <laughs> They want to have this in place by Saturday's game, which is a 5.30 kickoff against Brighton. Tough place to go when you're looking for points. You can get the full preview on that match and the rest of the Premier League action by following this podcast. Click subscribe, click follow wherever it is you're listening now. You'll get the dugout show when it's released a little bit later, which is our preview show looking ahead to the weekend's action. Joel, Niall, cheers, boys. Cheers, guys. Thank you, thank you. And we'll see you for the next Football Social Daily very soon. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk.